0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: I'm sure most of you know that that is the opening of Tosca. Those three big chords... that are seemingly unrelated to each other but make a big statement a huge statement now puccini is known for beginning his operas in just the perfect way usually what they do is set up an atmosphere they set up a sonic environment or a musical environment for the story that we're about to be immersed in so You know, this is a very strong story. It's violent. It's fast. It moves faster than just about any opera I know with three brilliant characters that connect with each other in all sorts of multi-layered ways. But what do those three opening chords mean? Let's compare it to the opening of La Boheme. La Boheme, of course, is about a group of kids, essentially, Artists, poets, philosophers, musicians trying to eke out a living in the 1830s on the left bank of Paris, all living together in uh, attic rooms up in garrets, right? You know the story. All these young kids. How does Puccini open it? <laughs> Energy? Testosterone. <laughs> That's what La Boheme is all about, right? <clears throat> I mean, almost entirely through that first act is these four kids, these four guys, until Mimi shows up, and then, you know, everything falls apart. They, they, they begin falling in love, you know. They ruin everything. But, you know, it, it is about youth. It is about vitality, and what a perfect description of these guys, you know, who were trying to to make a living as artists in Paris, who were all young and vital. The other thing that Puccini likes to do, particularly in La Boheme, and then even more in Tosca, as I'll talk about, is that every time he introduces a character on stage, we get music that becomes attached to that character. So, for instance, Rodolfo, in La Boheme is the romantic lead. And he's got very lyrical music. It's, it, we hear this music and the first time that he opens his mouth. This is the tune that we get. <laughs> develops that idea whenever Rodolfo is on stage. It never stays the same. That music is never static. He does the same thing with Mimi. The first time we see Mimi is when she's come up the stairs to that garret room. She had a candle in a candle holder, and and the flame went out. So she knocks on Rodolfo's door, please, can you relight my candle? And this is the music we get. She says, scusi. He says, una donna, right? A woman. And here's her music. We can tell already, first of all, she's probably a beautiful woman, and she's also probably ill, right? It's a very tender, very lyrical, you know, she's a little tentative. She's weak. And the music says all of those things. And again, whenever Mimi is being talked about or is on stage, somehow Puccini is going to weave that music in. Some of the other guys, Colina, the philosopher... (laughs) Or Shonar, the musician. You know, all all of these ideas are different from each other and are used to help tell the story. Um, This might remind you of another 19th century composer, Richard Wagner. Now, if Puccini were standing here tonight and I said, "Uh, Giacomo, you were influenced by Richard Wagner, he would deny it to his dying breath. Because as far as Italian artists and composers and musicians are concerned, nothing good could come north of the Alps. But you couldn't be a composer or a musician during the 19th century, particularly from about 1850 on and even well into the 20th century without somehow being influenced by Wagner. And you had to either get it and use it or completely deny it as a composer and, and ignore it. Uh, Puccini was indeed influenced. These ideas, they're called light motifs leading motives in English, but I don't think that tells you any more than, than what the actual definition is. The definition is a musical one, and let me tell you what a leitmotif is. It is one of those musical ideas, usually a kernel of an idea, or I like to call a cell of a musical idea, or a melody, or a rhythm, or a chord progression, that is attached To a character, a plot device, an emotion, or a prop in Wagner's operas. The Ring of the Nibelung, for instance, it's 17 hours long. Four operas, I mean, you go four times, right? Although he wanted it to be a festival where you just sit there for seven, you know, (laughs) we're not going to do that. And if I explained the motif system any more to you, we'd be here for 17 hours. But um, they're always developed. These ideas, they may be attached to a character or a plot device or a prop, but, but they're always in development. They always change. Why? Because the story changes. The characters change. They shift. Right? They, 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 Siegfried, for instance, this is his idea. Every time we hear that, we very rarely hear it in its pure form, as I just played it for you. It's almost always developed. Puccini does the same thing. These are not what we would call signature tunes, that every time a character comes, comes up you know, on, on, on stage or enters the story, the orchestra plays his tune or her tune. No, 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 no. It's far more complex than that. It's, it's just fodder For the composer to develop the story and to develop the characters musically. And it creates a wonderful mosaic that tonight we're going to try and look at a little closer. Uh, But when you sit back and enjoy the opera, it just happens subliminally. And it's, it's really how Puccini's operas works on us emotionally. It's quite wonderful. Now, why is it that Puccini's melodies are so memorable? There are formulas. And once you learn the formula, you too can write a tune like Puccini. <laughs> First of all is the Italian arc. right? I'm, I'm a little famous for this because I like to talk about it. It's sort of the typical shape of a melody in the Italian repertoire. Uh, and I think Puccini did it better than anybody. perfect example of this would be the tune... Uh, from El Lucevan Le Stelle, which is in the third act of Tosca. This is Cavaradossi's Farewell aria. Here's the tune. An arc. Here's another one. And another one. arcs. You could, if you drew a line between the notes on the score, this is what you would get. Just like the wonderful ponte, the wonderful bridges over the Arno in, in Florence, or any of those, those old Roman arcs that you see all over Rome and all over the, the old Roman Empire. Uh, just perfectly limbed, perfectly uh, uh, sketched out for us. And, and that is the classic shape of a good melody. But he also used what we call conjunct melodies. Conjunct melodies are simply melodies in which notes are right next to each other. The, the melody is made up of adjoining notes, like right? That they're all the notes are all close together and they move from one note to the other. Um, here is the big tune from Rodolfo's aria in La Bohème and these th- this melody is built on conjunct notes <laughs> you can just see one note melting into the next, into the next. There are very few skips or leaps in the melody. Again, the shape is almost arced. This happens all the time. He loves conjunct melodies, and conjunct melodies are easy to remember. We can sing them after we hear them once and and walk out of the theater, and they're still with us. Uh, Also, Puccini steers away from the note's Uh, rarely steers away from the notes in any given key. If he's in the key area of C major or G major or more often G flat major which just drives me crazy because it's hard to read. um, Very rarely will the melody stray from that key. What happens then is that often we get scale passages going up or coming down. For instance, in this melody, right? Conjunct, if you noticed, and just one skip at the end. But in the middle of that aria, which is Cuando Menvo, uh, Musetta's Waltz from Act Two of La Boheme, we get this. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, and it's remarkable how often he uses these devices. But the most interesting device to me is um, what I call a musical curlicue. They are melodies that surround a note. And if again, if you drew a picture, they'd sort of be like this. It's it's really fascinating. And it it becomes a kind of Puccini signature. Um, Melodies that surround a certain tone uh, and then keep coming back to that tone, back to that pitch. Here, for instance, Sono Andati. This is Mimi's uh, remembrance of the relationship she had with Rodolfo at the end of the opera. She sings... Gurlicue. Another one. And he ends the melody with another one. If you break it up, we just keep coming back to that first note and then moving on. Uh, Again and again, we hear this in the music of Puccini, but let's get back to those chords. gets a lot of mileage out of that idea. And what it is, is Scarpia, the villain of the piece. These three chords represent and are attached to Baron Scarpia. And he really is just one of the evilest, meanest characters in all opera. He's the head of the chief of police um, in Rome, which is ruled by the kingdom of Naples. So he's on the side of monarchy, uh, and everybody else, or a lot of people in the story are on the side of Napoleon and revolution and getting rid of the monarchs and trying to establish a republic. But he will have none of it. Uh, so, you know, those cords stand for his snarl and his evil and the way that he uses Tosca to try to get what he wants. Well, and, and in fact, Tosca is also exactly what he wants. Uh, you know so both of these things he 's hoping to to take care of, so this music is almost everywhere, but, but isn 't it interesting that twenty five minutes before we actually meet Baron Scarpio, we hear his music, even before the curtain goes up, there is Scarpia. Why? Because he uh, uh, pushes the entire plot he 's the, the one who Propels it. He's the one whose influence they're trying to get away from, right? He makes everything in this opera happen. He's absolutely at the center of the story. Here, for instance, at the beginning of the opera, a political prisoner, Angelotti, who was a representative of the previous Roman Republic, which didn't last more than a few months, actually, and all that's true, by the way, he rushes into the church. Uh, San Andrea de la Valle, looking for a key uh, that his sister left for him to unlock the door or the gate into a private chapel where he will hide. He's escaped from the Castel uh, Gandolfo and and he's or the Castel San Angelo, excuse me, and um, um, you know he's all excited and he's looking for this key. We hear it in the music. We also hear his discouragement. Almost sad. That's because who's in charge? Yeah. And it's slightly different from the first time we heard it. The first two chords loud, and then, you know, this, this halo of a chord for the third chord. Um, another, this is one of my favorite moments of, of Scarpia tunes. Uh, Angelotti and Cavradossi, our hero, who's painting a portrait of Mary Magdalene in the church where Angelotti has escaped to, they start talking about the political situation. Angelotti mentions the name of Scarpia. Scarpia Scelerato. Cavradossi sings Scarpia And then he rattles off the vilest description of a person that I've ever come across in Italian opera. Underneath that description, we get this. That lecherous satyr who uses the powers of the state to satisfy his vilest lust. Both hangman and confessor I'll save you if it's the last thing I do, he tells Angelotti. Um, It's everywhere. Uh, 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 Another favorite moment is at the end of act two, after Tosca has dispatched Scarpia, we hear the same chords, this time very slowly. All their snarl is gone. And the third chord is minor instead of major. she takes two candles and puts them on either side of his body looking around she sees a crucifix she lifts it from the wall and carrying it she kneels religiously and puts the crucifix on the corpse's chest suddenly drums are heard in the distance announcing the execution of Cavaradossi her lover She rises and leaves the room, very cautiously, closing the door behind her. So even after Scarpia is dead, his music is still there. His music is still there. What I'd like to do now is um, go through perhaps the most famous aria in the opera, and that is the second act aria of Tosca, uh, Vici Darte." if I can find it. Here we are. Um, at this moment, she's absolutely desperate. Uh, she's, she's being badgered by Scarpia to tell him where that political prisoner has been hidden. He knows that she knows, that Cavaradossi probably told her. Now, offstage, poor Cavaradossi is being tortured for the same information. And at one point, the news comes through that Napoleon has won the Battle of Marengo, which is the background of this whole thing. Um, And and, and Cavaradossi stands up and sings, Vittoria, Vittoria, yes! Napoleon has won. The Republic will live. And, of course, he's dragged back down into the dungeon. And and Scarpia um, decides that he's going to execute him the next morning. So here's Purtoska. Um, in order to save Cavradossi, she will have to give herself to Scarpia. Or say no, and Cavradossi will die. This aria is a prayer. It is not a plea to Scarpia. It's a prayer to God. If you know Tosca's background, she was raised in a convent. She's very religious. In the text of the Aria, she says, she sings that, you know, she brings jewels and and flowers to the statue of the Madonna. She's been faithful her entire life. And at the end, why do you withdraw your hand from me? She asks God. I'd like to invite soprano Preeti Gandhi to come up, and I'll talk it through with her first, and then we'll actually hear her perform it. Preeti. Now, the first thing that you want to notice about this aria is that all of the the opening phrases descend. It's almost as if Puccini is drawing a picture for us of her desolation. Visi d'arte, visi d'amore. Let's start.
0: The direction going down.
1: depths of the soprano's range. And again. A
0: for emotion. And then the orchestra
1: continues the descent. I mean, you can't miss the fact that everything, everything is being dragged down. I, I wonder if it's one of the reasons that stage directors like to have poor Tosca sing this aria lying prone on the floor. You know, to get the point across, she's desolate. Well, yeah, she is. But the music tells us all that. Now, here's something very interesting. Here is the music that accompanies Tosca's first entrance in the opera in act back in Act One. But it's changed ever so slightly. What's interesting is that the orchestra plays it exactly the way we had it before, but listen to what the voice does, centering on one note. I want to make a suggestion later as you listen to it.
0: I'm I'm
1: sorry. (laughs) You can stop now. I've always wanted to do that to a (laughs) soprano. But did you notice uh, the, the voice hanging on one note? And just repeating that note over and over again, I suggest, because of her religious background, that it's chant. It's Gregorian chant against this lyrical, passionate, beautiful music that actually is attached to her as a character. Um, let's go to Nell'ora del Dolore. <laughs> Signature of Puccini's great melodies. I hate to do this to you. <laughs> Can we go to the end? The perques? And what I want you folks to listen for are all the curlicues, not only in the vocal line, but in the orchestra too. Right on
0: perquet. <laughs>
1: And then Tosca gets her own (laughs) clerlicue. the score. The Scarpia chords. At the very end, we never hear them because as soon as the soprano's done, what happens? Yes! (laughs) So, after, after 115 years of Tosca conductors finally gave up. you know let's screw it just, let 's let's just let him applaud. we'll cut those four bars. but I, I think it's, I think it's really, really fascinating that Scarpia is the, it's like the music reminds us he's still in the room. So now, um, Preeti, if you will, I will not interrupt you. Let's go straight through it. Try and think. See if you can hear all of those ideas that I've introduced to you. And don't applaud until you hear the Scarpia Chords. Take applause for that. It's hard, <laughs> and actually, in the score, um, sometimes in a in a, um, in a in a piano vocal score uh, for an opera, there will be small notes that are not meant to be played by the pianist. They, they can be used as cues if the singer needs them. But <laughs> at the beginning of Madame Butterfly, um, the only thing that is printed large is the tune. And then it's pretty large when it changes key. But I was playing a lot more notes. That's because it's a fugue. A fugue is an 18th century musical form um, in which a melody makes a statement, then changes key, and then that same melody comes back in another voice, but in a different key. And then it goes along for a little while and a third voice comes in. But what are the other voices that entered earlier doing? Other stuff. <laughs> They're playing with the with the idea um, um, that the, the composers develop. And then sometimes there are four voices in a fugue, five voices in a fugue. The opening of Madama Butterfly has bothered me for 25 years. <laughs> Because here's a 19th century composer, early 20th century composer as well, who is surrounded by other composers writing what we would call exotic music. Music to bring forth the atmosphere of the Far East, like Turandot like Puccini does in his final opera, so perfectly, simply through the use of gongs and bells and unusual percussion instruments. We know we're in China from the first few bars of the opera. He doesn't put us in Japan. We get an 18th century academic exercise. You know, fugues were only played in church at the time of the writing of Butterfly, and they were only written by music students in the conservatory to teach them how to write they they were literally academic exercises no one used them seriously now there's one major exception verdi at the end of falstaff his one comedy he uses a fugue but it's a joke the fugue is is, is a, a joke essentially you know thumbing the characters thumbing their noses at the world and making fun of the whole world. The whole world is just a joke. And, you know, Verdi shows off and turns it into a fugue. But why would you begin an opera about Japan with a Western form? And not only a Western form, but an ancient Western form of music that's no longer in use. That has bothered me. Now, maybe it doesn't bother you, but opera nerds like me, <laughs> it really, really bothers. And it's not as if he didn't have Japanese tunes later on in the opera. He collected something like six to eight, I forget the exact number, authentic Japanese tunes. Here, here are some of them. That's when the bridal party of Butterfly, of Chochosan san arrives. It's an authentic Japanese tune. After she arrives, you know, you get that big climax as she's singing, and all of her uh, handmaidens are, are processing up the hill with her, and they're singing this gorgeous, lush music, which eventually becomes attached to Butterfly. And at the very end, the orchestra almost completely disappears, and only two or three instruments playing very, very tinily this little Japanese tune. have them. Um, Okami, the uh, the wedding party toasts the young couple. Again, authentic Japanese tune. Even when he's not using authentic Japanese tunes, he apes it. He makes it up, uh, particularly here at the beginning of act two, Suzuki, Jojo sans maid, Butterfly's maid, sings a hymn to the ancestors. She has remained Buddhist, where Chocho san, of course, has converted to Christianity. didn't he use it at the beginning of the opera to establish a sonic environment like he does in almost all of his other operas? This really bothered me. So like the first 64 bars I would just not pay any attention to and then, and then sort of hone in when the characters started to come in and, and the story began. I, I, find it, I just found it very, very strange. I want to go a little further though and say that there's something even more in this music. For for instance, it's another example of Puccini's curlicue melodies. Here's a scale, curlicue, 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 and another one, and another one. They're everywhere. The compass of this tune is very tiny diminutive, consecutive notes repeated at various pitch levels, but giving us a kind of diminutive aspect. What's the first thing that we see when the curtain goes up? The marriage broker, Goro, the Japanese marriage broker, showing the young naval lieutenant Pinkerton this house and how all the screens and doors work. And, you know, it's like kicking the tires of the car, right? He's, he's showing off the house and how wonderful it is, this little nut love nest that he will have with Chocho-san. You see where we're going with this? In a Westerner's eyes, from the turn of the 20th century, the Japanese, I would dare say all Asians, were seen and often described as physically slight, small, Moving quickly, almost sneakily, bowing constantly, servile, all those racial stereotypes that were all too common in the past, coming from that colonialist point of view. And, and actually, this is one of the bad raps that contemporary critics have given to Madaba Butterfly, that its observations of the Japanese characters, Chocho-san, Suzuki, the Bonze, Prince Yamadori, Goro, and Butterfly herself, are stereotypes, racial caricatures, and those complaints are laid to rest at the feet of Giacomo Puccini well, that's almost as bad as not knowing what Puccini was trying to describe in this and other passages. If this is true, that this opening music is a reflection of his racist outlook, then it's kind of disappointing. Coming from our 21st century, hopefully enlightened, point of view. Did Puccini hold these Stereotypes, this distorted view of the East? Or was he trying to do something else? Speaking of diminutive, when Pinkerton is introduced to the servants, we get this compact little music. Diminutive, subservient. Movements. When Chocho san's family arrives, we get comic music played by the comic, uh, played by the comedian in the orchestra, the bassoon. Right? So he's making fun of them on top of it all. And in one of the most provocative musical choices that Puccini makes, here is what happens in the orchestra just before Goro opens his mouth. After the fugue has sort of run down, run its course, we get this. a very strange marking in the music at this il primo quarto trattenuto hold the first beat of the measure back if he didn't mark that it would sound like this but no no he wants this Does that sound like a donkey? <laughs> the braying of a donkey. It's other composers use it all the time. That e ha e ha e ha, all the time. Puccini uses it himself when there's a donkey on stage in his one-act opera *Suor Angelica*. What is Puccini saying? He's likening this Japanese subservient um, diminutive character to an animal. Yeah? Or is the entire first act of Butterfly about Pinkerton's point of view? It's Pinkerton. I'm absolutely convinced it is this young naval lieutenant fresh from the United States... And he baldly, brassly tells uh, uh, the Sharpless, the American consul, oh, I intend to go back to America and marry an American wife. I'll go back to the United States. But while I'm here, I want to marry in the Japanese fashion so that at the end of every month, I could annul it I just, just by walking out. I could get a divorce by walking out. But if I stay... The marriage contract can last 999 years, but I don't intend on doing that. I'm going to go back to the United States. He's very honest about that. What has Cho Cho San done? She's gone to the American consul's office. She's given her uh, pledge to the United States. She has renounced her Buddhist religion. She has become a Christian. She has fallen absolutely hook, line, and sinker for Pinkerton. So the music telling us what Pinkerton's point of view is from that colonial background makes this opera, makes this story even more tragic. It works, obviously, at a subliminal level. No more, because now you know, <laughs> right? You, I have unlocked the secret for you. <laughs> but um, but it, it, it's just... That's why it's always bothered me. No, he's not, he's not placing us in Japan first. He wants to put us in the West first so that we can understand Pinkerton's point of view. Now, I'd like to turn to the aria. Of course, this is the big aria for Chocho-san at, at the beginning of the second act. Pinkerton has been away for three years. In act one, she's very much a child, She's 15, after all, and during the love duet at the end of Act 1, Pinkerton constantly calls her Bimba, child, child, baby. It's three years later. Pinkerton hasn't returned. He promised to return when the the robins nest, Uh, and there have been three nestings, she's noticed, and he's not back yet. And so in this aria, she pours out her faith that she knows he's going to come back. Or is that what this music is saying? Let's invite soprano Preeti Gandhi back to sing Un Bel di for us. (laughs) Notice in this first part of the aria, all of the curlicues, and the arcs. I won't even point them out. You know them by now. And arcs. Why is this aria so beloved and so easy to remember the tune? All of those formulas are there. The curlicues and the classic Italian arcs. Now, at this point, um, she speaks about wandering to the rib of the hilltop and waiting there, waiting a long time. She doesn't mind. In the accompaniment, it's almost as if we have a clock chiming. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Mimetto mm-hmm.
0: Mimetto là sul ciglio del colle e aspetto, e aspetto gran e non mi
1: la lunga attesa. And in the next section, she says that she's st- standing at the top Of the the hill. She looks down at the little city uh, and she sees a dot on the horizon. It's him. He's setting out for our little hilltop, right? let's, Let's do that. The tempo picks up a little bit and again we get curlicues as she describes this imaginary journey that Pinkerton is making up to the hilltop to her
0: And all in unison As he climbs the hill
1: composers do, describing the movement of the character Pinkerton, the imaginary Pinkerton coming up the hill. Uh, and then she asks, where is he? Where is he? Um, let's go just before the, the repetition of the tune. This is another thing about Butterfly that always made me crazy. That at the beginning of the aria, it's a beautiful tune, right? built on those curlicues, um, and there's one syllable per note. It's very, very simple. Notice that when the tune returns, there are many syllables per note, and I want you to ask yourself why. When she gets back to that big tune, why, why didn't Puccini work with his librettists to make it so that it's like the beginning? Simple, and, you know, Luscious and one note per syllable, so that it, it wouldn't get it always seemed to me to get marred by the fact that there are all these sort of um, fidgety syllables. Let's start at un po' per
0: yeah, un po' per <laughs> One.
1: I want to suggest she's not sure. She's not entirely sure. She's a little insecure. She's telling Suzuki, oh, he's coming back. He will arrive. But I think that Puccini adds those syllables to make us feel her nervousness that maybe maybe it's not going to happen she's just a little bit unsure of herself and i love that explanation because i think it i think it also i think it also gives the singer something to work with to communicate instead of just throwing out all those syllables they mean something deeper than simply a lot of syllables. Let's listen now to the entire aria.
0: Uscito dalla folla cittadina
1: study Puccini, the more I disbelieve all of those professors we had in music school who said that he was a second-rate composer. Oh, oh, shocking. Yeah, but they did. They did, right along with Tchaikovsky, who's another person that I absolutely adore, and we all do. But um, I, I think perhaps in the 20th century, the middle to the late 20th century, we were a little embarrassed by the sentiment. We were a little embarrassed by the passion. Um, But I don't think we are any longer, particularly the more we get to know Puccini. Thank you for your attention. See you at the opera.